Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and very happy to see you here for this um, special edition of our Writers Live series. Uh, there, there are copies of our calendar out on the table uh, outside the door, and I hope you'll pick one up and come back uh, for some of the other events that are coming up um, the rest of this year. Um, here to introduce our special guest speaker this afternoon is Andy Freeman. He's with the local law firm Brown, Goldstein, and Levy, and he's a proud alumnus of Stanford University Law School. Andy? So it is a thrill for me to introduce one of my two favorite law professors um, who really inspired me and hundreds, maybe thousands of other law students, um, many of us um, who've gone on to be trial lawyers, many, um, I was a failure and did not go into the public defender service, but, but many who did. Um, Barbara, as you may know, know, actually grew up in Hyattsville, Maryland, went off to Penn for college, to Yale for law school, and clerked for Judge Edgerton on the D.C. Court of Appeals um, in the early 1960s. Um, she was, we'll hear today about Clara Foltz, and it's, there's really wonderful echoes between, um, even I think of her now as Clara. Barbara's been speak, talking about her um, as if she knew her, um, about Clara for a long time, um, between Clara's life and Barbara's life. Um, where really um, Clara Foltz, I would say, unlocked the doors um, to the legal profession for women um, as the first woman lawyer in California and then as the inventor of the idea of the public defender. Um, Fifty years later, Barbara led what was really the first generation of women through those, in, in, in large numbers, through those doors. Um, in the early 1960s, or in the mid-1960s, then became the head of the Public Defender Service, first head of the Public Defender Service in Washington in the late 60s, came to Stanford as the first woman professor in 1972, came back to Washington to head the civil division under President Carter and Attorney General Bell um, in the latter part of the 70s, then back to Stanford, um, where I had the pleasure of being her student in the um, early to mid 80s. And what was really, we had a lunch on Friday at my office um, where Kelly Swanston brought a whole flock of public defenders um, or a bunch of young lawyers and older lawyers, but a bunch of young lawyers from my office. And what was really striking, so Barbara and her generation were the first group of women, um, both in, to, in large numbers into the public defender service, but now I mean, what showed up again another 50 years later, so 50 years from Clara Foltz to Barbara Babcock, another 50 years from when Barbara started out of law school till now, um, was how many, it's now the norm, and I think the, the women lawyers in their 20s and 30s who were at our office on Friday um, are the beneficiaries, as, as certainly I am and many of us are, of both the pioneering work that, that Barbara did and, though we didn't realize it, of the doors that Clara Foltz opened 100 years ago. So with that, I'll turn it over to Barbara. Thank you. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here with you this afternoon. This is 
uh, the end, I think, of my uh, my tour on Clara Foltz. I've been, uh, I've actually, this is the 74th appearance I've made all over the country doing all kinds of things. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been a new way to get to know her um, in addition to uh, having lived with her for a number of years. Um, so I come to you today as a biographer, but uh, as you fans of the genre know, uh, there's an awful lot of autobiography that creeps in to any biography. Um, what you select to tell, uh, how forgiving you are of your subject's faults, are all influenced by your own experiences. Indeed, having spent many years on the biography, I am turning now to autobiography. I'm calling it my recollections because I found I couldn't get all my stories fit into Clara's life. But um, I got quite a few of them fit in. Um, growing up in the 1950s, I assumed that I would marry, have children, and be a homemaker like all the women I knew, including my mother. But I also planned to be a lawyer like my father. From an early age, I loved his stories about practice that they often started a lady came into the office today, and then he would be off on a rollicking tale of dire straits in which the lawyer comes in with the help of his special powers and rescues the situation. I believe that I had such powers and could rescue people too. So long before talking, people talked about having it all, I imagined doing just that, but I had no conceptions of the obstacles Indeed, when I entered Yale Law School in 1960, I had never heard of sex discrimination. Uh, there was no such name for it. But by the end of the decade, I not only knew it firsthand, but I had joined the movement for gender equality. Almost simultaneously, I committed myself to a second cause, the defense of the criminally accused. By the age of 30, I was the first director of the D.C. Public Defender Service, which came to be recognized nationally as a model office. A few years later, I taught the first course on women and the law at Georgetown and at Yale. And the women's movement then carried me to two more firsts. I was the first woman on the Stanford Law Faculty in 1972, and in 1977, one of the first women to be an assistant attorney general of the United States. Uh, and interviewers at the time often asked me some version of the same question, which was, how do you feel about getting your job because you are a woman? I developed a stock answer. It's a lot better than not getting it because I'm a woman. But today, no one would be likely to ask such a question because women have come so far, so fast, with gathering momentum in recent years. In my lifetime, I've seen the first woman Supreme Court justice and even more improbably, the first woman dean of the Harvard Law School and many more first. Uh, though it draws special scrutiny to be first and it can be lonely, it has the advantage that there is only one of you. Being first is a kind of success in itself. You, you, you understand why I say that. Some years after coming to Stanford, 
I heard about another first woman, Clara Foltz, the first to be a lawyer in California, known as the Portia of the Pacific. Famous in the 19th century, Foltz was only a faint memory a hundred years later. She was an early feminist, converted as a girl when she heard Lucy Stone, one of the great orators of the early women's movement, preach freedom for the slaves and liberation for women, using the same scriptures to support both. Foltz always credited the women's movement for a large part of her success, just as I do. A more particular link was our mutual dedication to public defense of the criminally accused. Foltz invented the idea of the public defender, and I spent the most salient years of my career working as a public defender. The more I learned about her, the more parallels I found with my own first woman experience, and I decided to write her biography. <coughs> this is an allergies and not uh, some dread disease. Uh, my identity as a defender and a feminist influenced how I saw Foltz's life. And, I start, and when I started writing my recollections, I realized that, that how I saw her life was influencing how I remembered my own. I have written both the biography and the autobiography at a moment when women lawyers have made gains which would once seemed incredible to most people. Not to Clara Foltz, however. She hoped for and struggled to find an equal place in the legal profession for herself, though it did not happen in her lifetime, nor for generations following her. But the moment has now arrived. Once a minuscule and discounted minority Women lawyers, with their male allies, now number in the hundreds of thousands. Foltz believed that when women were actually accepted in the profession, they would change it for the better. And she trusted that her own busy career promoting constitutional rights for the criminally accused and civil rights for women would inspire and instruct. I hope the same for both of us. Now the working title of the book was originally um, First Woman, Clara Shortridge Foltz, Her Times and Ours. In a way, the firstness of the title still fits the major themes of the book. Clara Foltz was first in many unusual ways. She was a trial lawyer before women could serve on juries a highly paid political orator before they could vote, and a public intellectual at the dawn of the era of mass media. In all of her activities, she enjoyed a curiously modern type of personal celebrity. The press covered her appearance, her fashionable dress, her wit and charm, along with her latest opinions and achievements. And most of all, they marveled that while pursuing every professional opportunity, she was a single mother of five young children. When I started this work, the, this firstness of Foltz's seemed her most important accomplishment. And I kept trying to expand this. Maybe she was first 
uh, in the West, um, or, or first on the West Coast, maybe first west of the Mississippi. But then I came to see that it depends on what you mean by first, and there are lots of ways to define the first woman lawyer. Is it the first woman to pass the bar exam? That was not Clara, but a Santa Cruz woman named Nellie Tater, who passed the bar exam but then was not admitted. Is it the first woman to join the state Supreme Court? Foltz was the second. Is it the first woman to try a case to a jury? That was Foltz's friend, Laura Gordon. Or is it the first woman to be admitted to any court? And that was Clara Foltz. In 1888, a decade after her admission to the bar, Foltz was appointed to serve on the board of the State Normal School, which was a teacher training institute, most of whom students were women. So you say, duh, what's so, uh, it, it has women students, of course they would appoint a woman, but they never had before uh, appointed. She was the first woman to serve and the first woman to hold a statewide office in California. And it came about as a result of her political involvement, speaking to thousands of people in the political campaigns of the 1880s. In Clara Foltz's day, women were so rare in public life that in a way, everything she did could be sliced in some manner to, uh, to make it first. For example, the first 30 years or so of her career, Foltz was very peripatetic, and often when she moved to a new place, she was the first woman lawyer there. She also was indubitably, I love to say that word, indubitably, I, I, bet, I bet he can't do that, <laughs> the first woman notary public in the state of California. Um, in 1890. Now, why would you think that, uh, of all the stories I could tell you about Clara Foltz's accomplishments, which were uh, amazing, why would I pick this out as a significant one? Uh, I started, I wondered this when I saw that she always mentioned it herself in interviews and on her resume. She always said, first woman notary public. And I said, why? I mean, so what? And why would anybody brag so about that? Um, but the, because the story of her becoming a notary is a microcosm of her whole career in a, in a way, of her goals, the obstacles, her courage in facing them, that's one of the stories I want to tell you today, how Clara Foltz became a notary public. Um, and this is an excerpt from the book. Notary today is a minor ministerial office, but it was a very important position in the 19th century with unique statutory powers to administer oaths, authenticate acts and documents, and preserve the sworn testimony of witnesses for trial. The notary seal bore the arms of the state, and there was profit in it, not only in the statutory fees for services, but also in the potential for a lawyer notary to pick up the underlying legal case that people were there to get um, affidavits and papers signed. A notary ship was especially useful for criminal lawyers because their imprisoned clients could not otherwise 
sign affidavits in support of their petitions. In California, as in most places, only voters could be notaries. Thus, for the women suffragists, the job became a symbolic step toward full citizenship. The movement press hailed each new woman notary in the same celebratory spirit as it announced women becoming lawyers, doctors, school principals, and voters in school board or municipal elections. Foltz lobbied steadily for a woman notary bill for years. Opponents made their usual arguments rooted in the unbridgeable gulf between masculine and feminine spheres. Nature had not designed women to be notaries. One man suggested that notaries would come from the sappers and miners who supported women's rights and not from the rank and file of her delicious, tender, modest, and lovable sex. This time, though, the separate spheres did not hold. Foltz's notary bill passed both houses in 1890, and Foltz wrote immediately asking the governor to sign it and then please to appoint her to the first San Francisco vacancy. It was a hard sell for the newly elected governor to give a valuable patronage appointment to a woman, especially one who had so publicly abandoned the Republican Party and stumped for the Democrats in the previous election. Though he signed the notary bill shortly after Foltz's visit, he did not appoint anybody to the job. In April, Wells Drury, the proprietor of the Daily Evening News in Sacramento, wrote a remarkable recommendation for Foltz. Having known her for 20 years, he assured the governor, possibly tongue-in-cheek, that she possessed all the Jeffersonian requisites for the office she seeks. And then in poignant lines for a public record, he wrote that he first met her when she was a dressmaker in Salem, Oregon, working her life out to support herself and her little family, recognizing the futility of such a struggle against the growing needs of her children she determined to fit herself for a more remunerative calling and so devoted herself to study of the law with that end in view. Her subsequent history you doubtless know, he wrote to the governor. From desperate dressmaker to famous lawyer, this was Clara Foltz's story, the way she liked it told. The governor was evidently persuaded and he signed her commission. Foltz was to be the first woman notary public in California. She, she was also one of the first public interest lawyers of either sex. A friend said of her in 1895, some 17 years after she joined the bar, with a few associates, she has made a new profession for women. Foltz was an example for all lawyers in the way that she had practiced law, not with the view of achieving purely business ends, but to improve the administration of justice. When law is conceived in such a broad way, her friend declared, it is the noblest of professions, worthy of noble womanhood. Now, 
what did she, this mean that she was practicing in the interest of justice? Um, though she advertised, and this is another passage from the book, though she advertised as a family lawyer, probate and divorce, Foltz's actual specialty for most of her life was hopeless criminal cases for those who could not afford a male attorney. She simply could not resist the pleas of people so desperate that they would come to a woman lawyer. An admirer wrote that she was patient and kind and served all who applied for her services, charging for them only when the party was able to pay. She called them her poor, despairing clients, and they were a main source for an idea taking shape in her mind that the government should pay for the defense of those charged with crime, just as it did for the prosecution. From many individual situations, she formulated the proposal for a public defender and the arguments that she would use to support it. An example was the case of Charles Colby, condemned to die for murder. She came into the case after his appeals and his funds were exhausted and tried to obtain a commutation of his sentence. When she failed, Colby became, in 1880, the last person publicly hanged in Santa Cruz, California. On the eve of his execution, he penned an open letter thanking Clara Foltz for her earnest and zealous efforts on my behalf. He was only sorry that she had not come into the case sooner. They got the best lawyers in Santa Cruz to prosecute, he wrote. Perhaps Foltz thought of Charles Colby years later when she urged that the unequal skills and resources of prosecution and defense made a public defender necessary. But her real gain, she, she did, did a lot of, she came into a lot of cases uh, at a late stage um, when, when the money was exhausted and there was very little else uh, that could be done. And she developed uh, what she called a pardon practice in which she would go to the governor and seek a pardon. And this was out of any normal um, uh, process. Um, and there was a four-year period when the governor was a good friend of hers, um, and, she, uh, and she really was very successful during this period. Um, and one of my favorite stories and one of her favorite stories was uh, a time that she uh, had a client uh, and she wa wanted to get him a pardon, so she took an old veteran um, who had been in the um, uh, Mexican-American War with... Um, uh, with him, or, or during the Civil War, and she said, um, and he told the governor this story. Johnson, the, the, the client, was herding sheep in the gold country. On July 4th, 1862, he hung out the stars and stripes. About 20 desperados from the mines and whiskey saloons came by and shouted for him to take down the Yankee flag. He heard the threats, he knew the danger, but he rushed into his cabin, brought out his six-shooters and repeating rifle, 
And as the rebels advanced upon him, cocked and cried, I'll kill the first man who dares to lay his hands upon that flag. Without a further plea from counsel, Governor Perkins took a blank pardon from the desk and filled it out for William Johnson. That was a story that she loved to tell, but what she got from her pardon practice was a firsthand look at the injustice of harsh sentencing, incredibly harsh sentencing, following a trial without adequate counsel and entered without credit for rehabilitation or hope for mitigation. The experience not only inspired Foltz's public defender idea, but it also led her to conceive uh, a campaign for a parole bill in the 1890s. Naturally, she was one of the first people in the nation to think of the idea of parole. Now I want to talk to you about um, another case which Clara Foltz counted as pivotal in her career and in her conception of um, the public defender. Um, the book is full of stories of her trials, uh, as you can imagine, because um, that's one thing, not having access to her papers, uh, but, but I was able to, um, uh, to get transcripts of cases that she lost, and then uh, in cases that she won, uh, they would be covering, they covered the lady lawyer in the newspapers. And there were, uh, in the 19th century, newspapers were really what, what people read. There were 21 daily newspapers in San Francisco. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't all have the same report. They, they each had a different outlook and different reports. So you could get quite a good idea of what went on on any particular day in court. This was um, in 1892 in San Francisco. The country was on the verge of the worst depression in history, which arrived in 1893, but it was already going strong in the West. Clara Foltz represented James Wells, who was once a successful real estate man with an office near hers. But he was broke and in jail when he turned to Foltz for help with a charge of forgery. Foltz thought that Wells was factually innocent and that the prosecutor was wrong even to charge him. For his part, the DA was irritated by her lone woman righteous defender stance and her absorption of the jury and press attention. With a weak case and a strong sense that the defendant was guilty, the DA put aside the proprieties. Basically, the facts were undisputed. Only motive and interpretation were at issue. Wells had introduced a woman named Ollie Hutchins to moneylenders, and she had falsely signed the wealthy Emma Dick's name to a mortgage and received $8,000 in gold coin. Foltz's defense was that one Pelchner had actually arranged the impersonation and that Wells was hoodwinked along with the mortgage lenders. Pelchner had committed suicide hours after his arrest in the case without making any comment about it. The first prosecution witnesses were the real Miss Dick, who said that she had not mortgaged the property, 
and the lenders who testified that Wells had introduced them to Hutchings as Emma Dick. Then Ollie Hutchins took the stand for the state. The young adventuress, as one paper called her, was a dark-haired woman about 30 years old. She testified that Pilchner's only role was to introduce her to Wells and that he, not Pilchner, had set up the scheme and then paid her $1,800 for her part. Most damagingly, she swore that Wells had forced her to flee, promising to confuse the pursuit with a false description if the forgery came to light. Hutchings' tale of staking out a claim in Washington, finding a good man to marry, and then being hunted down and arrested made her appear sympathetic. So Foltz's first move on Cross was to dispel the impression of Hutchings as either distressed lady or hapless tool. Without ceremony, she attacked. You are a woman of many names, are you not? What are some of them? Ollie Hutchins, Winnie Graham, Pearl Lewis, Irene Casey, and Gracie Gilbert are all I have. To which Foltz remarked, you have a musical ear in choosing them anyway. And before the younger woman could respond, pressed her to tell how she met Pelchner. One question later found Hutchins admitting that she had served time in the House of Corrections for what crime remained tantalizingly open for the moment. Pleading fatigue, Foltz asked the judge to recess for the day. She wanted Ollie, also known as Winnie, Pearl, Irene, and Gracie, to think over what was yet to come. The next day, Foltz concluded what all the papers called her merciless examination by forcing the admission that Hutchings had been a prostitute at the notorious 17 Grant Street brothel and that she had served time for soliciting young girls for the business. A news artist caught the moment, Foltz with an accusing arm extended, and Hutchins in shrinking attitude on the stand. But the jury could believe the witness was lying about some things, like the amount of her own involvement, and truthful about others, like Wells's guilt. Moreover, the real star of the prosecution had yet to come, the terror of the defense bar, Detective Isaiah Lees. Lees had policed, policed San Francisco from its early days, gathering fame for always getting his man and wealth from sometimes letting him go. Foltz believed that Lees had chosen to make his case against Wells instead of the actual culprit, Hutchings, because he was soft on her. Authoritative and slightly menacing, Lees had a lot more experience protecting himself, projecting himself as an honest witness than Clara Foltz had as a cross-examiner. Nevertheless, she controlled his answers by skillful questions. She successfully established that Wells seemed shocked when told of the scam, and that he had tried to help locate the woman who posed as Emma Dick. In fact, he had described to the police the Emma Dick he knew right down to four different dresses he had seen her wear. The question, 
was whether Ollie Hutchins fit this description, and secondarily, whether she had ever owned such clothes. A match would show that Wells was honestly trying to help the police find her and that he, too, was duped. But if the description was off, then Hutchings was truthful in saying he was trying to confuse the pursuers. The whole case could hang on this piece of testimony, and Clara Foltz pulled out all of the stops. Smiling amiably, she started, Wouldn't you say, Captain Lees, that the description Wells gave of Ollie Hutchins was as good as a man could possibly give of a woman? Not at all. For one thing, the height was a good three inches off, which is a great deal where a woman is concerned. Wells had said the woman was five feet ten inches, exceptionally tall. Clara, mildly, ah, but wouldn't a woman's high heel shoe account for such a difference? I don't think so. Not that much difference. Pausing for effect, Clara suddenly seated herself, stooped, and took off her shoe without the slightest ceremony, holding it aloft. Undeniably, the heel was very Frenchy, very high, said one paper. You see, this shoe, Captain Lees, could not a heel as high as this alter the height of a woman to an appreciable extent? Yes, muttering, so would stilts. As Fultz made this bold demonstration, one paper said, the crowd looked on admiringly, thrilled, expectant, wondering what would come next in the way of delightful sensation. Though San Francisco men were accustomed, the paper said, to a little private pure reading when the wine is brisk, it was more than slightly risque for a woman, especially in open court, with unbashful fingers, to loose the latches and hold that shoe up for all to see. The story then described Fultz's perfect foot as revealed by the beautiful shoe. The last on which that shoe was made was narrow, tapering, aristocratic. Continuing its slightly ironic tone, the article concluded that few would dare call Clara Fultz handsome, such hardihood is not distributed to the many, but handsome women would snap their jeweled fingers at Clara Foltz's, who would snap their jeweled fingers at Clara Foltz's learning, would fidget with envy of the feet which bear all her weight of knowledge, and like little mice peeping in and out from beneath her tailored skirts. <coughs> While the veteran police officers was momentarily stunned by her shoe display, Foltz deftly pressed him to admit that men seldom really notice the details of women's apparel. Though this was very risky, she asked Lee, a trained observer, what she herself had worn the day before. He declined to even attempt a description. Now, for the rest of the story, you have to read the book. <laughs> and it's in Chapter 7, so you've got to read the whole book. Um, but Foltz's anger was unabated by the time of the summation in this case. There's many other things that happened that she considered prosecutorial misconduct. 
She told the jury that the district attorney, district attorney had acted improperly and implied he would not have treated an equal adversary the same way. I deplore the fact that the law does not provide for a public defender as well as a public prosecutor. At the same time, she suggested that if Wells was a successful criminal as the government charged, she would not be in the case. Do you think this poor, innocent man would have applied to a woman to defend him if he had money to pay some distinguished male member of the bar, she queried. Now, the Wells case is an important case because it showcased Fultz's exceptional trial skills, both in cross-examination and in summation, and the press coverage was lavish and largely respectful. But even the free publicity had its hidden cost. The shoe removal story, for instance, made her look good on client dedication, but bad on refinement and propriety. Ladies did not remove their shoes in public and wave them around. And not all the press was positive. One paper, for example, criticized her for bringing the Wells family into the courtroom and arguing emotionally for mercy on their behalf. Women lawyers, the paper said, tried to pervert justice and to soften the stern conclusion of reason, a tendency that has often been urged against the enfranchisement of their sex. To lose the case and to be accused of hurting the cause were both hard to bear. As she often did when she lost, even when, as here, there was no money in it for herself, Foltz appealed to the California Supreme Court. She won, and the opinion sounded just like Clara Foltz. If a defendant cannot be fairly convicted, he should not be convicted at all, said the court. Forty years after Foltz won her appeal, the United States Supreme Court decided its first case reversing for prosecutorial misconduct citing Wells as the most apposite precedent in the country. The court held in its now familiar language about the adversary system that the prosecutor may strike hard blows, but not foul ones. Foltz had just finished writing her brief in Wells, and the case was pending when she received an invitation to speak at the Congress of Jurisprudence and Law Reform held in conjunction with the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. With her outrage at the Wells prosecutor still fresh in her mind, Foltz decided to use this opportunity, the first time in history that women lawyers were asked to speak on the platform with the leading judges, practitioners, and professors of the day, to inform the bar elite of what was going on in the criminal courts and to present her idea for a public defender to offset the public, the public prosecutor and to assure the fairness of the trial. It was a new, original, and radical notion which she presented the, the case for providing free justice, that was her slogan, free justice to the accused. In addition to the need to curb prosecutorial conduct, Foltz urged that the constitutional guarantee of the right to counsel required that the state provide for a fair presentation 
of both sides of a criminal case. It would be 70 years before the Supreme Court decided as much in Gideon versus Wainwright. Now, I want to assure you that the book is full of such stories. Uh, the subtitle is The Trials of Clara Foltz, uh, with its double meaning. I, I have written the book with the hope that it will be entertaining and interesting enough to carry all readers along through her adventurous and complicated life, a life by which we can measure both how far we have come and how much there remains to do. In the peroration of her World's Fair speech, Foltz declared, let the courts be reorganized upon a basis of exact, equal, and free justice. Let our country be broad and generous enough to make the law a shield as well as a sword. And she concluded with a promise. Then there will come to the state as a natural consequence all those blessings which flow from constitutional obligations conscientiously kept and government duties sacredly performed. The promise holds true today. So I would love to have some interchange here. Is that all right? Sure. Yeah. Of course. Good. And we'd like for you to use the microphone to ask your question. So who wants to be first? Or comments? Professor Babcock very kindly donated a copy of her book to the Public Defender's Gala auction that we had last November. And as the auction coordinator, I was about one-third of the way through the book before I realized <laughs> I really shouldn't be reading the book that was about to be auctioned off. <laughs> but um, I do encourage anybody who has a friend, a child, a cousin, a student, a mentee who wants to go to law school to pick up this book. It really is a captivating story. And I enjoyed it so much, I have to say, is Clara Foltz Oh, going to be on a postage stamp someday? <laughs> no, I, I tried to get a planet named after her, though. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, well, maybe, maybe she will be. They're they're always looking for people, uh, uh, women. I mean, to uh, put on the stamp. Yes. Why well, haven't read the book? But uh, why was she a single mother? Why was she a single mother? Yeah. That uh, she. This, this is one of the most interesting things about her life. She um, eloped with a handsome Union soldier when she was 15. And, uh, and then she was on uh, a, a, um, spent years on an Iowa farm uh, with, with him bearing children. Uh, any other time in history um, that would have been childbearing and, and backbreaking labor would have been her fate. Um, and I think she had four children by the time she was 20. Um, so that's, uh, it was, she referred to the little ones that came so fast, like she didn't know where they came from. But, but uh, I, I um, and, and she, um, I think that her husband, Jeremiah, was, was trying to leave her, uh, and he went, he moved west to Portland. Um, but she followed him to Portland. Uh, and, uh, 
with a babe in arms and 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 three little children tugging at her skirts as uh, it was described and um and then in um and her parents her parents and two of her brothers um moved with her to portland um and then and then uh then they the whole family moved again to san jose california uh because the transcontinental railroad was uh, just finished, and it was thought that that was going to make a big difference in um, um, in the economy, and that people could make a good living uh, there. But it didn't actually turn out that way because another uh, a depression came along. But but anyway, she moved there to San Jose, and then uh, Jeremiah left again, and this time really for good. Um, and he went up to Portland, where there was, he had another woman. Um, there's almost always another woman uh, in that day, as in this one. Um, so there, there she was, um, with uh, with these five little children under the age of 12. And the usual thing for people to do in that situation was to parcel the children out to relatives, and and but she wanted to keep them together and with her. Uh, and she was determined to, and she had tried dressmaking and hat making, and she was a skilled, what they call needle woman. She was a skilled needle woman in those days, um, and she, but she couldn't make enough. And she had been a school teacher, and she had been um, uh, taking in boarders, um, but it, you know she couldn't make enough to support her family. So she, she had always wanted to be a lawyer, but she had gotten taken this detour um, <laughs> from of uh, 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 romantic love and um, and and that's that's so then he deserted her and she but she didn't say that he had deserted her he she said she was a widow uh, and uh, and so that made her situation more acceptable that she wasn't uh, just trying to be a lawyer um, you know uh, to show off or uh, which is what people accused her of doing, but it was it was an amazing um, it was an amazing thing that she did, um, and and how she did it that that's a, one of the questions that I, I never completely I, she I think she was incredibly brilliant and capable uh, person, uh, but she also had uh, tremendous energy um, and and she. She was an autodidact, and she so though she had very little schooling, she read all the time, and she knew a lot, and she was a good writer. Um, she had big ideas, uh, and um, and and nothing. And she she lived very much, and this is a lesson that I have really tried for, for myself, living with her all these years and trying to understand her. She she lived in the moment. You know, she didn't say, uh, you know, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to have some fun or my life will be good next week or tomorrow is now, now. Uh, and she she was she had she enjoyed herself. She enjoyed life. Um, and uh, and even though the obstacles uh, and, and it, you know, she 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 always said it's no my life hasn't been a bed of roses, but uh, but I've had um Many good things have happened, and people admired her. She had had a lot of friends, uh, men and women, um, 
and um, and they liked her, uh, so that that helped her a lot. You want to go to that microphone, and then you can get on the recording. <laughs> oh, it's gone. Uh, yeah. Thank you. As a baby lawyer myself, starting out in California's gold country, in the public defender's office there, I was surprised that many of my clients uh, suffered from mental illness and their criminal, um, si the situation that led to their uh, prosecution directly resulted from the fact that they're not able to uh, access mental health treatment. And I know that my experience was in no way unique. That's typical today. I wonder, and I guess I assume it was similarly typical in her time, and I wonder if you uh, discuss any cases she handled where her uh, client uh, suffered from mental illness. That's uh, what a good, interesting question. Um, and did you know about Clara Foltz before? Uh, oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> the, um, but um, no, that, that, that's an example that, that, that somebody who was in, like you, who was in California would never have heard of Clara Foltz. Uh, uh, we're going to change that. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, you know, I can't think, I'm trying to think. There are quite a few cases, but it's not that I have of, of hers. Um, but I can't think of any where she actually directly um, raised the insanity defense. But she did mention when she was talking about the plight of the accused, um, it, it, which was part of her, um, uh, her, arguments for public defense were based on, um, uh, 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 partly on prosecutorial misconduct and that the prosecutor, and they were, uh, and on the, the constitutional uh, ground that, that the state owed it to the, um, to the accused as a citizen, um, not only to prosecute but to defend. Uh, but she did talk about, uh, she talked about the the problems uh, of the people that they you know that they were poor and that they uh, had mental illness and uh, and weren't taken care and had no one to take care of them. So she saw that she saw the whole picture was part of it. But I don't think I don't think I have a case where she raised the insanity defense. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you very much for uh, talking to us about this. I wonder if you could say a little bit about her politics you mentioned and how the political scene shaped her activism and the kinds of opportunities she chose to pursue. You mentioned she switched party affiliations. She had friends in, in high places. How did those connections shape the kind of choices that she made? I, I think I think they did. I mean, that's it's, it's an interesting question because I, one of the the most interesting parts of her life was was her political activity, and she was in the 1880s in the in the presidential campaigns. She she spoke to thousands of people uh, in in the, in these, uh, and she, she campaigned for the Republicans when. When it was the party of Lincoln, and when it wasn't, <laughs> but that, uh, but but she uh, she she was a Republican. Her father was um, uh, her father had been a lawyer, and then he uh, and was a lawyer at, at at various times. But he left the law, according to one of his stories, when um, 
when he got a guilty murderer off, um, and then he and he felt that he and he became a, a minister uh, and uh, a charismatic um, uh, uh, minister um, and and but he stumped for Lincoln and he worked for Oliver Morton as uh, who was the Unionist governor of Indiana. Her father did, and so Clara, as a girl, would hear her father. Uh, in, in both these settings, in stumping uh, uh, for political, political, and the you know the political uh, campaigning was just bonfires and torches and fireworks and it was and big parades and and as I say, thousands of people uh, outside uh, and and sometimes they literally stood on stumps and talked and. Um, and uh, she, uh, so she saw that, um, and she saw her father also convert people. He, he would keep a record of, um, of, of his success as an itinerant preacher, and he would say, you know, baptize 90, uh, 40 Presbyterians, 20 <laughs> Methodists, you know, uh, into the disciples of Christ. Uh, it was what he was representing, but she... So she had this, uh, and she she started out, as I say, as a Republican and campaigning for the Republicans um, in California and drawing these big crowds, and um, and and at a time when women couldn't vote, and that was what was so. Uh, but they were, but she was playing this this uh, important role and paid a lot of money for it. That was the other thing uh, for because having. Uh, a woman on the stump was so unusual, and it and it drew crowds and drew interest. And um, uh, but then then at one point, um, I'm trying to remember which which campaign it was. But but on the local level, um, the 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 um, the Republican uh, campaign manager, the man that was in charge, said that women didn't belong. Uh, in in the campaign, and that it was wrong of women to be in the campaign, so she switched to the Democrats, um, and the Democrat won, and that's how she got this first appointment to the um, uh, to the board, um, and and again that made and a lot, but she drew a lot of criticism for that, but uh, and then then there was the People's Party. Okay, became very strong, uh, the populist, uh, in, in the 1890s. And, and she joined with the People's Party um, and ran, and they were for women's suffrage. Um, and, um, and she ran for city attorney of uh, San Francisco uh, very seriously uh, and ran a serious campaign and, and got thousands of votes but didn't come close to winning. Um, but then eventually... Um, after the 1896 election, um, she she was for Bryan, um, uh, but she she went back uh, to the Republican Party and um, and and uh, voted for Taft, and uh, that makes me kind of sad. I, I don't cover that much, <laughs> but so she was. And then her brother, um, she, her brother was a U.S. senator. Uh, her her baby brother at the end, uh, you know, he, he was never a senator when he could when he could help her or her career. He was uh, 12 years younger than she, and I I think of him in the book as an example of what she might have been if she hadn't had um, this 
this unusual intelligence and also uh, been a woman and been a member of the women's movement and really trying to change society and, uh, and gain equality for women because he was just a big windbag. Uh, but but he had two senators. Uh, he had two terms as senator and undistinguished. You know, there are no papers. He has no papers because he did nothing, as far as I can tell. Um, and um, but he was the senator from California, uh, one of the senators from California, and it was a job that she had um, hoped someday to have herself. She wanted elective office, and the other thing, of course, she wanted to be was a judge. But uh, there were very few elected women judges in the states. Um, but the first woman federal judge uh, was appointed the year she died, which was 1934. So, yes. What happened to her children? Did they carry on any uh, her beliefs, her legacy, and so forth? That's one of the sad. Uh, the question is, what happened to her children, and whether they carried on her legacy, and. Um, and I think our, her legacy is in our hands, <laughs> the, the daughters, I think of her daughters-in-law. Um, I, I, I'm one, and I hope that many of you all uh, will. But her own children, the saddest thing in her life was that four of her five children predeceased her. And, um, and only the youngest um, was um, uh, lived after her and... Um, and she, her daughters, her three daughters were all quite beautiful. I've never gotten a picture of um, Jeremiah, but I think he must have been handsome, um, and that's probably what got her into eloping at the age of 15, um, which was such a bad idea. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, but um, but they were all actresses, and um, and and the Trella, the oldest one, um, was was really had some success in New York. Um, um, Trella Tolan was her name, um, and the um, um, and the youngest one that survived her um, was uh, Light Opera, and 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 again had some success. Um, but her sons were businessmen, um, and. And as I say, they died early, and they, they weren't lawyers, and um, nobody was a lawyer. Um, and they don't seem to have, they, they, were, they, they weren't estranged. She was always um, close with her children. And though she, she would sometimes say that she sacrificed all the joys of her young motherhood to, um, for the cause of women, but she's usually carrying the children along, and the daughters are getting up and reciting before she makes a speech. And um, I, I think she had a, a lot of happiness and success with her motherhood, but not um, not anybody to carry on after her. I believe you mentioned that she did not have access to her papers, and I'm wondering why not. Because uh, they they've just been lost. Uh, I didn't have her papers. Um, and I, I kept thinking for a few of the many years that I worked on this, I thought um, that um, her papers might turn up. Uh, but, but, um, but they're not, they're not, you know, she, the idea of giving her papers 
to a library or of getting everything together um, and and putting it in one place um, uh, didn't seem to have occurred to her. She was um, uh, and the, the, oh, this is this is the other thing that that is sort of chilling, which is that she. Um, that I found in the paper, uh, in the newspaper, right after she died, within the week of the t of, of her death, there's this big ad. All the papers and effects of the first woman in California for sale. And I I I got I found the man who was a boy and lived next door to her when she died, and now he's an old man. Um, and um, he remembered that, and he said the daughter came, and just um, uh, there was a huge sale, and then uh, everything was, um, um, and then everything was out in the alley was just thrown away, and and then in the in the Huntington Library, under um, suffrage ephemera, suffrage ephemera, there is uh, a, a, one of her scrapbooks, and. See, that's a heartbreaking thing. She says that she kept, she tells about scrapbooks that she kept. Um, and, um, and so and there is this one scrapbook, but it's, and it, it's the year, it's her scrapbook for the year women got suffrage in California in 1911, but it's mostly from a clipping service. But it was put into a scrapbook with her hand, I think. I feel her hand there. So I just, I've just been on this big search of recreating her papers and you know their her letters are in the papers of other people letters that she wrote and she put out a magazine um, in the when she was in her 60s a magazine called um, the new American woman and she wrote a column in this monthly magazine called the struggles and triumphs of a woman lawyer and and in it she tells her stories it's kind of her favorite stories and it's not um, it, it's not comprehensive and, and leaves out many important things like uh, speaking at the World Fair for the Public Defender. But she, but she wrote articles in law reviews and as I say, she was in the newspaper all the time. I have to say, Judith Crithers, my student, was, I think was my first research assistant on Clara years ago and, uh, and <laughs> more years than any of us would like to remember. But um, but a lot of the things that I did, um, the, she started, which was like making a chronology. Now I, I think if her papers turned up, it would all be to the good. It would just add um, color. I'm, I'm quite sure that I've got the basic stories right. And that, but there are things that I would love to know, like romances that she had. I think she must have had. And... Um, um, and, and uh, that you know her her appointments and who she knew and a lot of the really personal things um, I don't know. Would she have known Julia Morgan? I know who she was, a great architect. Yeah, and I think Clara probably knew her because she was in the women's movement um, too. See, they they were all. Um, it's, it's amazing that uh, how many people were in the movement and knew each other, uh, women from all walks. Um, the, the thing about Clara Fultz that is so interesting is that she wanted, 
she really wanted everything. See, she wanted to be a glamorous society woman and have beautiful clothes and jewels and um, things like that. And and uh, why did she want that? I don't know. But she wanted to be a great trial lawyer and she wanted to be the governor of the state or a senator or a judge. And um, there, there, there's almost nothing that she didn't aspire to. Yes? How do you account for this sort of voracious appetite that you describe in clerical? It seems like it would be something that would be so um, inconsistent or unlikely to find in a woman that has been brought up in a society where you're basically told to limit your appetite. So how do you account for somebody being born into that world and being so utterly different from it? I, I, you know, that that's something I, in, in my own, you know, lesser way, try to account. People ask me that all the time when I'm writing my recollections in the 50s. Why did you want to be a lawyer? What made you want to be a lawyer? And and she um, she says when she first, she only went to school, she only had two years of formal schooling. And, um, um, and in her uh, struggles and triumphs, uh, she said, from the, that she always she was very influenced by her father, and um, and 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 that he was impressed when she started school that she had this talent for what she called abstruse thinking, and 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 he kept saying to her, uh, this is her account of what happened. He kept saying, if only you had been a boy. She was the only girl in the family. He said, if, if only you had been a boy, um, I would train you for the law. He, says, she, he said, I think you really have a talent for the law. And, the, and her mother said, don't tell her that. She'll get it into her head to be a lawyer, and nothing in the world will stop her. And so, you know, I, I just think she always, she had this tremendous confidence in herself. And, um, and then... But she didn't do it. I mean, she did, did, you know, uh, elope uh, and uh, and start having children, which had to interfere. Um, but but uh, so it wasn't until the way she would tell the story is that she was forced to it. Uh, she had to become a lawyer, you know, because, because in order to keep her family together. But uh, but we know that she always that's what she always wanted deep down. Let's make this the last question. Judith? Yeah. I think for me, the, the, the rescue of Clara from security is, is a secondary story that's almost as interesting as Clara's story herself. So we started in 85 doing microfish studies in the San Jose Library. And I remember I spent two summers down there just going through microfish, looking for any mention of her. Could you just talk briefly about how you kind of put her story together and, and built her life? Because uh, you did, I think you've done an amazing job of reconstructing with very little original materials available to you. It 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 well, it took a long time, <laughs> and and as you know, and uh, um, when I when I started, the my elders and professional um, biographers and historians said that that you know that it's crazy to try to write about somebody. Who doesn't have papers, and there must be, uh, um, and but I always, when I started, 
I always thought I would find your papers, see, because lawyers, that's what they're good at, finding things, you know, and uncovering things. And um, so I, I didn't believe that I would end up where I started. But, uh, but then I just keep thinking about what might exist. Uh, and that's, that's it, you know, we would, we would get some dates and you would go look at now what's happened and look through newspapers, see so much was in the newspapers and she was really in the papers all the time. Um, and, and now so much of what we struggle to find and, uh, and, and people like um, Judith um, ruined their eyes on this horrible microfiche. And, uh, now the um, um, genealogists are putting 19th century newspapers up for, the, um, uh, for their work. And, and uh, there's just a tremendous amount online that didn't used to be uh, there. But, um, and then there are a lot of the, um, you know, there's a lot of the suffrage materials, you know, the movement papers are, are there and, and, um, uh, and but, but it's mainly, uh, and then this uh, court transcripts and her articles and her autobiographical columns and then other people's, uh, other people's papers and books about other people that mention her or mention people that knew her. It's just, it's all, um, it, it has been, it's been a, a very long journey um, that I'm not sure that I would advise taking. <laughs> but I don't know. It's been, it, it really, it's been a lot of fun, too. And I, I now have no, um, I don't have any sense that anybody else is going to do it, see. Like, you know, if you were writing about somebody, you'd be afraid that it would be somebody famous, that somebody else would come out with the, with the book that before you got yours done, but but nobody is going to do this. Um, so it um, and and now it's it, there's a whole world of biographers too, and of women biographers, and you, there's a a, a a circle of of people who are writing about these lost women. In fact, could could we could Marlene just tell Marlene Tressman is she here? She left. I, I just just met Marlene Tressman, a fellow Baltimorean, um, le learned about um, my work on Clara Foltz. I, I published a number of articles over the years about various parts of her life. And Marlene is, is studying this woman, Bessie Margolin, who was uh, a lawyer in the 30s and 40s in Washington, D.C., very high up in the Labor Department, uh, or uh, at a time when there are very few lawyer, women lawyers, and she argued 28 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court and won 24 of them, and nobody's ever heard of her. And she was a really interesting woman. So, so uh, Marlene is writing her uh, her biography. So I think this is this is, and, and there's a, just a number of, of women. We have a little circle of uh, that are are being found and recovered and, and a lot of them do have papers uh, so thank you so much professor babcock has been really interesting and um, i think everybody wants to read the book and find out more um, i have copies for sale out in the hallway and she will be signing at the end of the hallway down by the humanities department thank you so much for coming to baltimore thank you thank you